Welcome back to Prairie Design Lab, a podcast coming to you from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. Prairie Design Lab is a podcast that builds on all that has been accomplished by the first architecture faculty in Western Canada. I'm Terry McLeod, the host, producer, and writer of Prairie Design Lab. This is episode eight, one that we've titled Remote. It's a look at architecture through the eyes of three University of Manitoba architecture grads who practice across North America with smaller firms outside of the mainstream. Deidre Harris, born in Saskatoon, has been a senior associate for 16 years with the four-person firm of DNCA in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Tony Zeta, born in Winnipeg, is a principal at Kobayashi and Zeta in Whitehorse, Yukon, where he became a partner in 1999. They are a firm with 16 architects. They also run development and construction companies. Michael Cox, born in Fort Francis in northwestern Ontario, has been the principal of Michael J. Cox Architecture in Brandon since 1979. Since then, he's been the only employee of the firm, and for most of that time, he's been the only architect in Manitoba with a practice outside of Winnipeg. We gathered on the weekend, and I began by asking what led them to the communities where they practiced. First, to Tony Zeta in Whitehorse, Yukon. When I was going to school uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, it was actually quite difficult to find work in Winnipeg during the summer. So I ended up in Vancouver, had worked there for three or four summers. There was a job waiting for me when I graduated. And uh, I spent one winter in Vancouver and I decided I really did not like it. The following spring, um, me and the gr my girlfriend at the time made our way up to the Yukon with the idea that we would spend just a summer there. And as you know, one thing leads to another, and um, and that was over 20 years ago. And Deirdre, what led you to Albuquerque? Before I studied architecture, I was at University of Saskatchewan, and I took a um, geography class where I learned that not every single topography in the world is formed by glaciers. I was really fascinated by the Southwest and how it's been formed by wind and water. So I was kind of aiming in that direction. I spent four years in San Francisco and then moved to Santa Fe. I was kind of aiming for Arizona, but missed, and I'm totally happy here. The topography is great. It's the most incredible geology in North America, I think. And Michael, what got you to Brandon? Well, in 1975, I was asked by my employers in Winnipeg to move to Brandon to manage the branch office they had here. A senior partner in the firm was retiring. Uh, and four years later, in what the government of the day called protracted fiscal restraint, uh, the work that the office in Brandon did dried up and uh, the firm decided to close it. And I had enjoyed being in a small community and uh, I just stayed and I've been practicing or trying to practice ever since. And what was it like for each of you to work your way into your new community, a community in which you weren't born, didn't grow up in? What was it like to establish your architectural presence? Michael, what was that like for you? During the time I worked uh, on behalf of the other firm, there was a great deal of potential work that came to the office that the firm was not able to do within their business plan. Uh, and with the knowledge, uh, quite frankly, the encouragement of the firm, uh, I would do that work uh, after hours, uh, evenings and weekends. At the time, Brandon was only 35,000 people, so it's not hard to be noticed in a community of that size. So that gave me the confidence to stay when the time came to stay and open my own firm. And 
uh, it probably wasn't until 20 years later that I actually got around to doing a resume and getting business cards printed because it, it, it's just a small community, word of mouth. And being the only guy in town, it's the choice was go and talk to that guy with the beard or go to, Winni- <laughs> go to Winnipeg and take your chances. So it uh, was a lesser of evils in many cases. Tony, what was it like for you to get established in Whitehorse? Well, unbeknownst to me, when I came to Whitehorse, a mutual friend uh, said that there was this architect who graduated from Manitoba working in Whitehorse. And his name is, is my partner now, a business partner, Jack Kobayashi. And I do remember him from university. He was a few years ahead of us, of our class. And so I just connected with him. And, um, you know, a few months later, he called me up and he said, do you, uh, you know, we've got some whole bunch of work. Are you interested in doing a little bit of part-time work for us? And um, of course I said, sure. And then one thing led to another. And I think, so that was the way, you know, I, I established myself in terms of working in Whitehorse. Whitehorse at the time was like a bit like the Wild West, practicing architecture in a small town of 20,000 people in the north. It was kind of liberating. There weren't a lot of um, requirements uh, other than the building code. And so you could really experiment. And I think people were willing to um, to give upstarts uh, a chance. So I thought it was a very welcoming community. And it was you know filled with people from, from elsewhere. And so you know, it felt like a good place to try to establish a practice. And Deidre, what was it like for you getting established in Albuquerque? The whole time that I've been in New Mexico, I've worked with people who, who are already established here. And so that's helped greatly. And it's interesting. I mean, word of mouth is everything in architecture, connections and being part of the community. But the other thing that's that I don't know if it's special to New Mexico or not, but there's a real culture of storytelling here and you know, directions are given based on a business that went out of business 20 years ago, like where, where something was 20 years ago. You sort of have to be somewhere a while to be part of it. You kind of have to become part of the story. And after 20 years here, I, I kind of feel more connected to everything. I was actually motivated when I moved up to, um, to volunteer with uh, some of the local First Nations and help them with some of their infrastructure work. And I was just a recent grad. So interestingly enough, there was a need and I built relationships. And I think um, our work is largely based on those relationships that we've established and we continue to nurture. What I like about architecture in a small place is that we stand behind our work. People know who we are. We're proud of that. And I think that there's a direct connection to the different things that we've done. What did you do to attune yourself to Indigenous communities because they're such a significant force uh, in that part of the world? There's 14 First Nations in the Yukon, and uh, unlike much of Canada, most of them here are self-governing. They're another level of government. They've negotiated their land claim settlements, so they actually are empowered to move ahead economically and socially. And I, and that is a very interesting opportunity, relationship um, for us because uh, when they became self-governed, uh, there was a, a, a lack of a many infrastructure projects in, in each one of those communities. And so, and they're still working on that through assisting them in, in creating buildings and community centers and schools. It's been a really great experience for us because I, I see the First Nation becoming, you know, realizing that dream of being a self-governing First Nation and deciding their own future. So for us, we've been part of that from the very beginning just because of our timing. And I think that's given me um, no end of joy seeing those governments flourish on their own and becoming independent, particularly economically independent. 
I know in your part of New Mexico, there are a lot of indigenous people and there are a lot of indigenous buildings from the very original time of those communities before the settlers came. What kind of a connection, Deidre, have you developed with indigenous people with an eye towards understanding the community, but also perhaps enlarging your practice? New Mexico is about um, a third Hispanic, a third Native American, and a third the rest of us. I think there are great lessons to be learned from how they built and how they made the most of limited water, how they managed to garden and get things to grow, despite the fact that, you know, they only got rain a little bit each year. I would say that the impact is more in how we design things than in the nature of our practice. Tony, I understand for you, you're designing buildings that in some cases stand on permafrost that are in situations where there's uh, limited electricity and you get, of course, uh, much shorter days, depending on how much further north you are. Uh, What kind of challenges does that present for your firm? There are numerous challenges. You know, the fact that uh, in parts of the Yukon, we're building on frozen ground and the Northwest Territories is is a challenge all on its own. Uh, even more so with climate change, um, because what's happening is that ground is warming and uh, buildings are shifting and it's making those foundation systems even more interesting and complicated. You know, we're big fans of energy efficiency because it's practical in the north and, um, you know, we have communities that don't have roads. So we, we're, we're designing buildings and communities where everything is flown in on a plane. And that is also another challenge because... Uh, the building and its components are um, limited by the size of the opening in the uh, in the transport plane. So that's just something that a lot of people don't really have to think about when they're thinking about building buildings. But you know, and the other thing is just energy. Energy is a is a huge component of living in the north, and so that's why there is a focus here on limiting uh, how much energy is used in buildings. And I I'm really glad to see standards moving to net zero energy because I, I think the north of all places in the country would benefit most from more stringent um, requirements for envelopes and buildings just because of maintaining those buildings and heating them. Michael, for you, the community that you serve out of Brandon, what kind of challenges arise for you in dealing with those clients? The vast majority of my clients um, either came to me because they had to this is still a pioneer community. This is still a place, you know, my grandpa built that barn all by himself. I need an architect. Are you like, are you crazy? But when the building authority says, yeah, you have to, the next question is, well, where do I find one and how do you spell architect? Uh, so that's one group of clients that comes to me. And so, and they, and it's often, you know, 3.30 on a Friday afternoon. This is a community that uh, got together and they decided to build a new set of change rooms on the natural ice hockey rink that is the core of their community has been falling down. Uh, and they've got a, a guy who used to live in the community who now designs the green elevator foundation. So we can figure out how much rebar to put in. There's another guy down the road. Who's a road builder who's got a big scraper and he's going to scrape the dirt off. And he's got a bunch of a base left over from a job that is already paid for. And he'll donate that. And they were going to do all of that on Saturday morning. And they, and then somebody said, Oh yeah, but we need a building permit. So they came in to see the authority having jurisdiction and the guy said, well, oh, wait a minute, you can't do that. You have to go and get a building permit. You have to go and see an architect. And the phrase is often, you have to get him to put his stamp on those drawings. Well, these are drawings they did on the kitchen table with graph paper they borrowed from the art room. And while they're descriptive of what their intent is, uh, they were just 
created because they knew they had to dig grinds. So you dig grinds. So at 3.30 in the afternoon, these guys come into my office, hoping that I'll be able to put a stamp on the drawings. And when I tell them that that's not the way it works, they're crestfallen because they failed. They represent their community. They've come to do good work and they'll go home failures. It'll happen someday, but now it's going to be delayed. And by the time they get around to it, the road builder and his machinery's gone away and the gravel's been used someplace else. And they just, they don't, they can't see a path forward. The fortunate thing is that over the period of time that I've been here, I built trusting relationships with the authority seven jurisdictions. So I was able to get, in this particular instance, get this guy on the phone and say, look, I've looked quickly at the code pieces. Here are the issues that I see that we can't meet. If we follow that set of guidelines, we're going to be building this in the neighbor's backyard. If we follow this, we're going to put up a, a firewall between the two buildings. It's going to create a dam on the downslope of the existing roof. And now water is going to get into that structure and make it even uh, more precarious than it currently is. So what if we did this? And, and the what if we did this is not written in the code. It's what the code calls an alternate solution. But it's not been created by fire protection engineers. And it's just common sense. And so after this conversation, there's a little silence and, and the authority says, yeah, I think that'd work. If I presented a set of drawings with that as a concept, would you issue a permit? Sure. You know, he says, I'm not going to be anywhere near that community for the next two months, which is code for go ahead, pour the concrete on Saturday morning. I trust you. And, you know, in due course, we'll get drawings stamped by an architect and it'll all be cool. Deidre, I know you're smiling as you're listening to Michael describe this. What makes you smile about this? New Mexico is very much a place where people just do stuff. And I've done a lot of what, what I call retroactive permitting, where somebody comes in and they want to do something the right way. And I go down to the city to talk to them about it. And they're like, oh, well, you know, we can talk about that if um, if you can help us deal with all the unpermitted stuff on the property already. It's an entertaining exercise trying to speculate about how something might have been built so that you can submit a permit drawing 20 years later. It's the Wild West here, too. I think I think we all live in the Wild West. Tony, I know you're nodding, but in, in what way is your practice similar but also different? I've been looking at your website, and it is an extensive one full of gorgeous, stunning, innovative buildings. Your practice seems to be less of the uh, the sort that Deidre and Michael are describing, which is to say that way that people want things finished that they sort of half-built themselves. One thing about the North I can say is that there is no shortage of um, transfer payments that are coming from Southern Canada. And over my time there, uh, you know, I would argue um, it's probably disproportionate compared to the rest of Canada, frankly. And I, I think part of that is due to maybe the guilt of the South with respect to the North, maybe with the romantic idea of the North being such a big part of our country. But, you know, there has been no shortage of funds that have come to the North to improve the infrastructure. And I think, I mean, I grew up in Winnipeg, I grew up in Manitoba, and I, I know that compared to the, you know, the North, things were, were pretty tight in the, in the prairies. And I think it was hard to find money to do things like, like it is available in the North. I think we've just been fortunate. We have also been, uh, I would argue, aggressive in the sense that we re really are creating opportunities out of nothing. We are trained as architects, but I spent a lot of my time doing things that are related to architecture, but isn't specific ar to architecture. When you live in a small place, and I'm not sure if it's the same for Michael and, and Jirra, 
But, you know, we provide a lot of services to clients and it's more than just architecture. It's like project management. It's like helping them with the financial part of the, of the project. It's helping them find a suitable contractor. It's helping them get funding. So when you live in a place like Whitehorse, you tend to wear a lot of different hats just because um, people are coming to you with a whole bunch of different needs and they don't know they can't find those resources you end up filling some of those gaps for folks. In what way does that happen for you, Deidre, with with the firm? In what way are you helping consumers of your service to be more successful? We spend a lot of time on some of our projects um, helping out with the fundraising, um, producing materials that are needed for fundraising, spending time meeting with potential donors. We will also spend a lot of time talking with um, with authorities about how to get projects to happen. I think that's kind of the nature of architecture now is that you kind of have to shepherd it along. In some ways, architecture requires a lot more skills than um, simply designing a building. What impact did your studies at University of Manitoba have on the way that you approached architecture? Jim and I can speak to our experiences because they happened at the same time. Um, it was a very stimulating environment for us. I look back at my days at school, I kind of miss what we had created back then. It really depends from year to year. I had a great number of years at the school, largely based on the people that I was going to school with and, and the people that were teaching at the time. What I liked about the university uh, back then was that uh, it was it was grounded. Um, and, you know, I really appreciated that. I think it, it really tried to train us to understand the built world, the built environment, it gave me the skills that I needed to take on whatever I would be faced with in the future. And I give all that to the environment that I learned in. And I really um, feel a strong connection to the university and to Winnipeg still, largely because of those memories and those experiences. I, I think I resonate with people who graduate from the university because it seems like we've all been trained with that same perspective. And I think that's very different than some of the other schools, at least at the time we were going to school and how they were uh, training uh, students. I fully concur with all of that. And I had the occasion to be part of some um, reviews for one of our past professors, um, Herb Enns, uh, recently. And I was struck by how I've, I've done some teaching here at University of New Mexico. And I, I was struck by the thing that I'd forgotten or that I hadn't realized about Manitoba was how much we were taught to make our own project. There was the, the essence of an idea put out and there were parameters about where a site could be. And then we needed to make the project for ourselves, find the site, figure out all the stuff about contacts. We weren't all doing the same project. And that I think really, to me, that's a master's degree. You know, you have to think for yourself through everything. I feel fortunate to have gone through school at a time when I did, where we were the last generation almost fully drawing on with on paper, with pencils. Um, which is a whole different way of thinking. We talked about um, natural phenomena and landscape a lot, the things that really connect people to to their place. It was a stroke of luck. I, I think about Manitoba all the time and all the, the things I learned there. Well, first of all, I'm envious of the experiences that uh, Tony and Deirdre have just described because mine was considerably different from that. I'm the last of the bachelors. I was in that class that was the last opportunity for anybody who had ever entered the School of Architecture at the University of Manitoba, hoping to get a bachelor's degree in architecture that would lead ultimately to becoming a licensed architect to complete the degree. 
So the 108 of us that showed up day one, year one, changed in faces, but didn't change in numbers much until graduation. Because for everybody who dropped out along the way, for whatever reason, somebody else woke up from that drug-induced haze of the 70s and said, oh, if I don't go back and finish now, I'm not ever going to be able to do it. On a regular basis, there was a new desk and a new face in the classroom. So that was one piece that I think diluted that experience of going through as a class. The class changed all the way through. And then the secondary piece was that as the new master's program in architecture was announced with Bachelor of Environmental Studies, as it was then called, came in to replace the old bachelor's program in architecture. Uh, Faculty members were preoccupied with deciding where they're figuring out where their place in this new program would be. Uh, To suggest that we uh, collectively were ignored might be too strong a statement, but I certainly felt that way. Not with the individual professors that were part of my thesis presentation and the core group that I worked with, but as a, as a collective, they couldn't get rid of us fast enough. So I became an architect in many ways, in spite of my experience at the School of Architecture at Manitoba. I have great respect for the school, and I've been connected with it ever since uh, in my capacity uh, on the Council of the Manitoba Institute of Architects and uh, more recently as, as president of the REAC. But my personal experience there was very different. In strange ways, it prepared me very much for what I'm doing right now, which is, you know, you just, you're on your own, buddy. Just get on with it. Just do it. And that's what I did. I didn't give any of you a chance to ask a question or offer a comment to any one of the others on this gathering today. Uh, Deidre, a question for anybody? Tony? Michael? Deirdre, I think uh, the last time I saw you was when we visited you uh, back, I think probably now I'd say almost, I don't know, 14 years ago? In Santa Fe? In Santa Fe, yeah. I knew it was before kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Michael, for you? It's a pleasure to have an opportunity to see other, the way other parts of this profession, this crazy world we exist in work. Uh, that's been one of the greatest pleasures of the time I spent uh, as president of the REAC was to, to meet architects from literally across the world. Uh, to listen to their experiences. And uh, as I described mine to them, to witness, in some cases, tears in their eyes. You know, the notion that you could actually practice architecture as part of a team with a builder, uh, a client, a community, all in the same room. You know, we, we now, we have a label for it. It's integrated design process, right? IDP. Yeah. Well, guess what? In the prairie, and, uh, and I'm sure quite uh, in Tony's experience in the North, That's the way it is, whether you like it or not. And often the part of the team that you don't see until the very end is the retired farmer who's going to write the check for the biggest part of this piece when it's all done. Or the manager of the co-op that's going to donate the exterior cladding in spite of what you designed. This is his contribution to the project. And without it, it won't get built. And so, okay, I'm going to use barn tin instead of this gorgeous anodized aluminum product that I had in mind. So it's, it's, Great to see all of these collective experiences and to find that throughout all of this stuff, we all do the same thing. What did I not ask that you were hoping to tell me? Well, I was going to say that um, for those folks who are uh, um, starting out in this profession, I think small town Canada, and I would say the same with the United States, really provides an opportunity for you to, to establish a practice. I think that it allows you to build relationships. The thresholds are lower 
for us, for example, we do a lot of housing development, and I would never be able to do that in Vancouver. I would just not have the resources to do that. But in the North, it became possible. And I, I always tell young people, um, young architects, you know, that go North or go small town. And I think COVID has certainly um, opened up that possibility for a lot of people. And so I, I think that there's, there's opportunities for architects in, in small town rural Canada and I think they should seriously think about the benefits of um, of trying it out in a smaller place. And Deidre, what were you dying to tell me? Um, I have been thinking relatively recently, and maybe this is COVID times, about what Tony was just saying and about how smaller environments work. And I think the advice about smaller places, I think everybody needs the skills that architects have to offer. And by that, I mean, they don't necessarily need a perfect building. They just need help from multifaceted people. I think that being part of a community instead of being, you know, the lofty architect in a big city or whatever, I think that it's our future. It's what our world needs. It's what our countries need. It's 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 what we need. Uh, you didn't ask me the advice I might offer to uh, students uh, contemplating the next 30, 40, 50 years of their existence, but that's in part what Tony and Deirdre just uh, addressed, and, and I'm going to echo the same thing. Whenever I finally decide to retire, which means stop doing most of what I do now uh, in, in this profession uh, and do something else or die, whatever comes first, uh, and somebody tries to, to decipher what the gain was for me, first place to look will not be in the bank account. One of it will be two doors down the street from where I'm sitting right now. A young immigrant woman from Mexico, as it happens, came here some time ago uh, to this community as part of an employment initiative for Maple Leaf Foods. Decided to set up a business on her own. Uh, I helped her find some space. And she eventually moved around and to the, the place that's just two doors down. And it's essentially a, a little ethnic grocery store, small little grocery store. But there was enough space in there for a few tables and chairs. And so she thought in a, a space up behind where she could get a health department approved kitchen set up and she could do tacos and tortilla soup and stuff that she and her, her colleagues in, in the Latin American community made. And it was at the back of the store because that's where the space was left after she put up the cash register and all the rest of the bits and pieces that she needed. And I was in one day and Carla was kind of down a little bit. And I said, what's the problem? She said, well, you know, the cafe isn't doing it. She said, I know it's not about the money, but people aren't coming into the cafe. And I said, well, it's because they don't know it's here, Carla. They don't. They can't get past the, the beans and the masa to get to the table to know that there's this fantastic food back here. I said, why don't you move it up by the front window? She said, well, uh, how can we do that? I mean, uh, we just, we spent the last money we had just putting in some extra plugs so our freezers don't go off in the middle of the night when they're overloaded. And and I, I just I said, Carla, just, you're going to be here for a bit? She said, yeah. I said, so I went and got my computer and uh, laser measuring tape. I drew every single piece of stuff that was there and I measured every extension cord and how far away I could push that machine from the plug it was plugged into and rearranged all the bits. And I came back the next day with a drawing. And she looked at it and, and the tears came. And she said, how did you do that? I said, Carlo, how did you make that soup you fed me yesterday? She said, well, I've been doing it all my life. I said, exactly. So uh, what do we do now? I said, we can do this without permit because you're not building anything. I made sure that we've not compromised any of the paths to exit or any of that stuff. So nothing's changed. You're just rearranging furniture. Okay, how much do I owe you? And I said, Carla, I know what your situation is. So, you know, when I come in and sit down and have a bowl of soup, 
just come and visit for a little bit and then I'll go away. Really? Sure. And, you know, whenever you think you paid me, then, you know, give me a bill for the soup. So this is the richness of the life that's possible. It's not all about making money. It's about doing what we do best for our neighbors and our friends in our community. And whatever compensation takes place, the greatest rewards for me in the 50 years that I've been practicing architecture have not been a check I've taken to the bank in cash. They've been in those personal relationships that we establish with our clients, our clients' families, and our community. Thanks to Michael Cox of Michael J. Cox Architecture in Brandon, to Deirdre Harris of DNCA in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and to Tony Zeta of Kobayashi and Zeta in Whitehorse, Yukon. Special thanks to Jay Sung Chan of the Faculty of Architecture for helping us to recruit today's guests. If you like Prairie Design Lab, please tell your friends about us. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, on Spotify, and Wednesday mornings on UMFM Radio, that's 101.5 FM in Winnipeg. You can find us on Twitter at Prairie D Lab and on our website, prairiedesignlab.com as we share the stories of brilliant Prairie architects and architecture. For Prairie Design Lab, I'm your host, producer, and writer, Terry McLeod. Mm-hmm.